Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I don't know about you, but I've had political whiplash this week. We started off with the Hungarian elections, which delivered an expected victory to Viktor Orban, but alongside a bunch of unexpected events, including massive turnout, extraordinary self-harming divisions among Hungary's opposition parties, controversy over who congratulated Orban on his win and how, and then since the election, a series of media closures and resignations that may only serve to reinforce Orban's power. We're going to talk to Hungarian-American journalist Katy Martin about the Orban effect. Back in Brussels, my Politico colleague Ginger Hervey reveals that sexual harassment is everywhere, even in the one place you'd think it could never happen, the EU's own institute for gender equality. More on that in the podcast panel. And in our feature interview this week, we talk to Jan Philip Albrecht, Green MEP and the European Parliament's Mr. Data Protection, who's off to run an exciting new mega-ministry back home in Germany. It's also the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Ireland and the United Kingdom after decades of deadly sectarian violence. And jumping over to the United States, the tactics of Silicon Valley were laid bare in Mark Zuckerberg's testimony before Congress. Did you know that Facebook is collecting data on you even if you don't have an account with them? And if you want to delete it, you can. You'll just have to set up that account first. And the Trump era has a new biggest resignation. House Speaker Paul Ryan announced his intention to resign. But first, we turn to Caddy Martin, the prolific Hungarian-American journalist who now works with the Committee to Protect Journalists. I caught up with her in between meetings here in Brussels from Commission bigwigs like Franz Timmermans and Vera Jourova to MEPs in the wake of the Hungarian elections. Joining me now on the podcast is Katy Martin, a very famous journalist, but now with the Committee to Protect Journalists. And you've chosen a really good week to be in Brussels, Katy, I have to say. Indeed. Well, not entirely by chance. The um, Hungarian election was, of course, uh, long coming. But it isn't just the election of Viktor Orban by a um, resounding majority in Hungary that is a grave concern to all of us who care about freedom, who care about the right of journalists to do their work without fear or favor. Um, Well, frankly, who care about Europe. 
I mean, we're in Brussels, where the European dream was meant to be realized, and which is now in great jeopardy as a result of what's happening in Poland and what's happening particularly in Hungary. You're right there. It's a real pattern, whether we think of the murder of Daphne Caruana Galizia in Malta, right. Jan Kusiak and his partner in, in Slovakia. Slovakia. Yeah. We've got the illiberalism in Hungary that you've already mentioned, Azerbaijan has an election tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, the day after we speak. And my experience there is that sometimes there's freedom of expression, but a lot less freedom after expression in Azerbaijan. And very few people think that's even a real election there. How much worse have things gotten in the last 12 to 24 months in your estimation? Much worse, much worse. And of course, when you compound what's going on in Europe with what Putin is up to, and it's really, Ryan, it's time for everybody to pay attention, because this is not business as usual. Europe, without support from the United States, is very vulnerable now. And we know what Putin is up to. And what he's up to in America has been demonstrated by the man who I think he basically elected president, that is Trump. But in Europe, he wants to basically divide and conquer, not conquer with force of arms, as happened in my early childhood in Hungary, which was occupied by Soviet troops, but conquer by spreading dissension, mischief, manipulation of the media, and without ever firing a single shot. Um, Orban, Viktor Orban, resoundingly, triumphantly victorious in Hungary, is basically his agent. And it's ironic because Orban started off, uh, I first met Viktor Orban in 1989 when he was this... When he was on the Soros scholarship, no less. Well, yes, but I met him when he delivered a rip-roaring speech about democracy and the future and how Hungary now was rejoining the European family of nations, all this great stuff. He was then a, a skinny bearded guy who gave us great promise and has now turned into this authoritarian demagogue who is uh, is Putin's mini-me. How can people draw the line between processes like Brexit and Donald Trump, which may have had an unsavory tone or may have been manipulated, but which most people would generally say was still a democratic process, and the sort of events that you witness, like the election in Russia, where it really was mostly a sham process. And then somewhere in the middle, probably, the election in Hungary, where you have a record turnout, but clearly people are turning out under different types of pressure. People have different opportunities to cast a ballot or not, depending on which country. Sure, sure. Well, you really can't lump the United States and Hungary in the same pot because in the United States, okay, our election, as we're learning, you know, listening to Mark Zuckerberg testifying on the Hill today, was deeply flawed and manipulated. And 90 million American voters had their records pilfered and shared with people they didn't intend to share them with. Okay, so that was a a, a corrupt election. But we have a very vibrant civil society. We have an independent judiciary. And we've got a, a media that, for all its troubles, is healthier than ever. None of this exists in Russia or in Turkey, another country that's gone, that's fallen by the wayside of populism. 
they don't have a free press. And the way that Orban won this election is his control of the media. They're hearing only one message. That's 24 hours of Orban news all the time. And Orban has overplayed his hand. Mm -hmm. When he announced last week that after the election, his critics would be held to account. Indeed. I mean, that's well, like a mafia. We're seeing it already today, Cathy. So we yeah. had an 80-year-old newspaper announce that it's going to shut down, one that is owned by Orban's former best friend. So for a long time, that was uh, a close ally of the government. They've recently been more critical. He said he would come after media outlets like that, like RTL, the only mm. independent TV station left in Hungary. What should someone who is sitting at their desk inside the EU headquarters now looking at this, what, what should they do in concrete terms? Or what can an, another journalist listening do to support journalists well, in Hungary? Yeah. For one thing, and I've said it to several EU officials, you guys have not told your story very well. The EU has to do a better job of uh, capturing people's imaginations. Don't even call it EU, just call it Europe. The only thing I've ever seen move people about Europe is the is Ode to Joy, you know, Beethoven's wonderful anthem to freedom. And when people hear that, when they sing that, they get misty-eyed. So let's work on the European narrative and tell that tale to those countries that are in the grip of these manipulative and really scary populists. I said to Timmermans, why not go to Budapest and give a big speech about what is Europe and what unites us and what... How you can imagine that. I can imagine a crowd flooding the square yeah. outside Parliament if he turned up yeah. and gave that speech. And you know what? He said, okay. He said, uh, well, get you me... You heard an, it here first on EU Confidential. Exactly. I, uh, my next call will be to... Uh, to the president of Central European University, because he said he, Timmerman said that that if if invited, he would come and he would give a speech. Okay. So you know the thing about Hungary is that although it's very, it happens to be my homeland and Hungarian is my mother tongue, but it's an impossible language and nobody else outside of Hungary, unless they're madly in love with a Hungarian, learns to speak it. So that language is kind of like a prison, too, because those Hungarians who don't speak English, and we're talking now about a city versus countryside mentality, as in so many places. The city is largely, the city of Budapest, is largely anti-Orban, but the countryside, which is, you know, kind of captured by Orban. And especially lacks free media. It's all pro-government media outside right. of the That's large cities in yeah. Hungary these days. Yeah, well, he's yeah. you know he's very carefully peeled off uh, free media. But um, I tell you what has really damaged democracy and free press and reporters' right to do their work is that the United States is no longer basically on their team. It's all going to come to a head in 2019, where Merkel and Macron have a window of opportunity to come up with a reform plan. They're also going to have to sort out what their terms of engagement are for the 2019 European elections, mm. because they're all staring down the barrel of not being able to have a majority in the European Parliament to elect any sort of mainstream pro-EU president. Yes, well, that's And so, so they're going great. to have to decide how much <sighs> they need or want Viktor Orban on the team or how much they're going to have to come up with a different form of alliances to do that. Yeah. But it's, it's all going to come out in the wash in the next 12 months. I yeah, think. well, that gives me hope. And, and also, I'm getting uh, the feeling here in my meetings that uh, this election and the fact that Orban has so exploited the largesse 
of the EU without playing by its rules, unwilling to bend on taking in refugees or on loosening the media. His judiciary it has now been decimated of independent judges. Um, if you're not going to play by our rules, mm-hmm. which you are treaty-bound to play by, then so long. Well, that is going to be a fascinating prospect. Take away the money, take away the free movement, and Victor Orban will see what he's left with. Katie Martin, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Katie Martin with the Committee to Protect Journalists. Now we're going to talk to Jean-Philip Albrecht, an MEP from the Green Party, who's also known as Mr. Data Protection. He steered that very controversial, very elaborate general data protection regulation through the European Parliament over the course of four years. And now he's going to tell us about his next job, his dream job, in fact. Welcome to the podcast, Jan. Thank you. Now, I know that you've got a new job. You're going to become a minister in the German state of Schleswig-Holstein. But before we get to that, I thought maybe we need to ground the discussion a little bit in in what people know you for in Brussels. And I guess my first question then is, does it frustrate you that a lot of people do know you as Mr. Data Protection for your role in shepherding the general data protection regulation that's about to come into force? Uh, When I look myself on uh, the time which I spent here and which I'm still spending here, I remember a lot of other issues which we had worked on and which I was fighting through the parliament, like, for example, the rejection of the ACTA Treaty in the European Parliament or the building up of uh, the uh, European Public Prosecutor's Office and and minimum rights in, in criminal law, things which are by far not as interesting perhaps at the moment as the general data protection regulation. So I can completely understand if people focus on that. It was very controversial at the time, but now it feels like a more mainstream way of thinking that the EU was ahead of the game instead of playing catch up as uh, lawmakers often are doing compared to developments in technology or developments in markets and so on. Do you feel like the legislation has has been quite future-proof and is ready to cope with this new environment where people are aware of what's happening with their data, where there are more scandals about data abuses? Yeah, I mean, that, that's also due to the fact that there is not, not a sole father or mother to this. There is a lot of people who can call this their baby and who worked on this very intensively over years. I mean, the works on the reform of the current directive which will be replaced by this new regulation started in 2009 and that's nine years ago so there is an intense in-depth work on every word and every paragraph in this regulation and that is also because we knew that we have to adapt to a new reality which is on the one side a new market reality we have a global digital market where the european union with its single market has to see first of all how to enforce own standards but also how to set global standards how to have an impact on the global debate uh, also in the digital market and also 
how you can regulate in light of new technologies, in light of very fast developments and innovation. And that was one of the biggest challenges in working out this, this legislation and that this piece of legislation will in the future turn out to be more positive for many people than many people might saw right, think right now. And one last thought on those years of work is it does strike me as an example of the EU system working rather well in practice, where it wasn't one ideology or one party's views. It really involved people stretching from, from you in the Greens through to people in the European People's Party who were able to develop something that, that worked across the political spectrum. I, I fully agree to it. And I think that it's mainly also a bit, maybe it was a bit of a, a necessity for this law because it was clear that we were harmonizing a field where many people in the European Union have strong feelings about, especially now with digitalization going forward. There's different standards. There's, for example, people from Germany who fear that if they have to agree to an EU standard that might be lower than their own standard on data protection or also of other countries uh, in Europe. And there is, on the other side, the industry, which doesn't want to be overregulated, but which also had a huge interest in having a single a legal framework for the European single market, where everybody knew that the fragmentation of 28 different systems in the digital single market doesn't make any sense anymore. So everybody had an interest in the procedure, but everybody also had very different views and very different ideas. So it was necessary to bring all of them together and bring them on one consensual line to make it a win-win solution in the end. And as a green rapporteur, being from a smaller group, of course, you always need to exactly do that because otherwise you will be just outvoted by the bigger groups. Now, if we switch uh, focus to your new job, so you're moving back to, or at least permanently moving back to your home country of Germany. And it just seems like an absolutely fascinating role where I was very excited to hear that they're even creating this role for you. And that is that you would be Minister for Digitalization, but also of Agriculture. And maybe there are some other tasks that I've, I've forgotten there. A lot of uh, environment, yeah. nature protection, and energy also. And is this kind of the dream job where you can really tackle things in a very holistic way? Some of these areas are the areas that would benefit most by having a successful digitalization or a sustainable digitalization. What's your sort of vision coming into the role of how you're going to connect all of these different tasks together? Yeah, I mean, all of these areas are very much impacted by the digital change automatization, which is happening now and in the future especially in this whole field of energy and agriculture, uh, there is a lot of new developments which will completely change the way how we produce agriculture goods or energy and how we live together with our environment. And for a green, all of these issues are very important, but for somebody who is into digitalization, it's also a huge transformation happening. And bringing that all together is really somehow a dream job. Yeah. The, the big problem which we have in governments dealing with digitization right now is that 
we are still in old silos. Every, everything is put into certain ministries and then everybody talks about somebody also doing digital. I think that this is completely the wrong approach for over years now and we need to change that. We need to bring horizontal competencies together, horizontal working groups. And the good thing with this new ministry is that everything is in one house. So I can actually do that. I can bring together farmers with those working on robotics or energy producers with those working on data protection. If you can fill us in a bit more there, how are you going to keep that connection back to to Brussels and, and European level thinking? We have EU agriculture policy, the whole climate change uh, policies or climate protection policies are European. Uh, quite a lot of nature and environment protection directives are out there. So I take a lot of knowledge from the EU level, not only on digitization, into a state ministry. And of course, I would like to also take something back. And one of the ideas which I had after like almost nine years now in the European Parliament is that people especially also young politicians, they need to go uh, with the European mind and knowledge into national governments. And here, of course, it's uh, one of the 16 German states, but still it's not so small. And they have a huge impact also on the German-European policy alliance uh, via the, the Bundesrat, which is the second chamber, consisting of the state governments. So there is still a very important role of these lenders into EU policy. And I would certainly like to bring forward a change in agriculture financing in the multi-annual financial framework. That is one of the big uh, angles where we can have an impact on together with others in Europe. And I'd really like to change the way how we talk and debate about the national impact on EU policy because I'm really almost a little bit fed up by national governments not talking even about their role on EU level. But they have a very important role and I think that we need public open debates on what's the position of certain member states in the council, what is the position also of uh, local and regional governments or administrations on certain EU structures and EU policy lines. It sounds like you almost talk yourself into a role as an informal ambassador as we come up to the European elections next year. (laughs) People who can translate Brussels when those discussions are are happening instead of it just being yet another national election, but sending some people to Brussels instead of to Berlin. And I think that it's more important, I wouldn't say perhaps than ever, but it's more important than in the past to have that now because people are realizing that the EU level, that the European level is an important level for them. So there is more mobilization now after years of crises, uh, making clear how important it is that we find European solutions for the migration challenge, for the climate challenge, for the financial market. We need that very much because I really think that we are at the very critical point of the European Union. I don't think that we can take it for granted. We really need to improve in the way how we communicate together in Europe. Jan-Philip Albrecht, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much. That was Jan-Philip Albrecht, a leading Green member of the European Parliament who's headed back to national politics in Germany. And now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast. The Brussels Brains Trust is back in action. Lina Abarus, back from Jordan. Welcome. 
Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alba. Lovely to be back. And hi, Awafin. Hi, guys. Now, I've got a little surprise for you. You didn't know this when you were coming in. But we have just published a story about sexual harassment, a plague of sexual harassment at the European Institute for Gender Equality. You had a situation where more than half of the staff felt that their harassment complaints would not be taken seriously if they needed to make one, and where people described it as a routine thing for sexist comments to be made in the office, for jokes to be made by groups of men against individual women that they would come across in the canteen or wherever it was. I mean, what's your reaction to that? It was very interesting when I was reading the story. It seems like a microcosm a little bit of the Me Too movement. And some of the responses are very interesting from the men. For example, the director basically said that there was a problem in 2014, but it was mainly because the female colleagues were attacking the men. I will point out here that the director is actually a woman. So it was the female director of the institute suggesting it was the women who were the main source of the tension. It feels even worse now. Um, The whole story is like courageous women, they came out, uh, great journalists that they've been working on this story. But the thing is that sometimes women do think that this is normal and this is a normal behavior. In the article, there's a lady that she made the complaint in 2012. And from 2012 to 2018, I mean, normally, if she's really, really upset and she was really harassed, she should have came out and used all sorts of powers, whatever, social media, talked to other women, went to associations, and marched an effort, especially with the Me Too campaign. It is not normal just to accept it and just be silent. because She did make a complaint in 2012. But in 2012 until 2018, until a Yeah, but that means the Institute didn't do anything. It wasn't that she didn't do anything. Of course, but she could have used more channels. What I'm saying is that they could have as well pressured the Institute. Not yeah, but I'm kind of on their side. On, on the, oh, of course I am on their side. Of course it's, it's a really sad situation. Of course we shouldn't ever accept it. But as, as well, we, we shouldn't just write a complaint and, and get afraid and uh, say, okay, I went with the procedure or the protocol that everyone knows. If I went to the human resources and didn't act, I mean, I should mm. find another channel to, to put my voice out loud. Yeah, I'd like to think I would do that in the same situation, but I'm not sure that I would because I think... The lesson from this story also is that it's very traumatic for everybody. And I cannot believe that this institute existed for a number of years before it adopted a zero-tolerance approach to sexual harassment. I mean, what was it, the sum-tolerance approach to sexual harassment before 2012? Mm, Yeah, and there was another line that I quite liked that someone said, basically, there was nothing happening. It was just that these people were very sensitive to gender issues. I mean, they are employees of AGA. Of course, they are sensitive to gender issues. I mean, in one way, yes, of course, I would always encourage people to come forward. But in another way, we are really putting all of this pressure on women and the onus on women to be reporting these kind of things. And in some ways, that is part of the problem. I mean, the problem is actually behavior, usually from men, 
towards women and it's uh, the onus on, and the burden of making accusations and, and saying that these things are happening rests on women and sometimes it means that they are going to lose their jobs uh, they're going to put themselves in very difficult positions they won't be inv- advanced all of these things are barriers to women reporting these things so i think it's just weighted against them so we do need to to co- realize that it's difficult for women to do these things even though we expect it because it's the right thing it's still difficult and we need to acknowledge that i think and prevention is the best cure and it's even difficult in aga <laughs> yeah. if it's difficult in aga where else is it difficult sorry to everyone yeah. listening but we, we've all just been a bit dumbstruck by this story yeah. in the newsroom <laughs> and every time i talk about it i'm still like what but it, it's bizarre like i have actually been to aga they they do some really good work and i didn't see any of this kind of behavior i went there with the, fem- the feminist movement so maybe i wouldn't have experienced it as a result of that but yeah it, it's shocking yeah, and it, the, the good thing is it's out, the story is out, everyone is aware, and uh, these uh, people in the article say that they were somehow uh, let go of their jobs, they they, they are out. Uh, I hope that there's a, a moral that, um, that the EU and the EU institutions are really taking steps seriously in firing people and punishing them and putting protocols in, in place and And supporting the, the pro- most vulnerable. Exactly. I mean, it was trainees who made these complaints. How could, how imagine that being your first work experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And trauma. And, so, and actually, I just have to say that I've heard that happen to a lot of trainees across the institutions that they're sexually harassed by. People who are in seniority to them, trainees are one of the most vulnerable in the EU bubble, I think. Yeah. Great. Now, what else we got? Alva, why don't you introduce this Yes, one? I will introduce <laughs> this. Okay, so I am nominating the fact that David Davis <laughs> this week said that he thought that the reason why Brexit negotiations weren't going very well from the Irish perspective was because there was a strong influence from Sinn Féin and this has been roundly disputed this morning in the Irish media um, because Sinn Féin are not in power in Ireland. In fact, Fine Gael, which is still... I think a, that's the point. They've never been in power. Exactly. That's why well, we got into all of those dramas, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, historically, they've been more strong in, in the North. But yeah, I mean, they haven't been in power really in the history of the Republic. And when he was asked or questioned about this uh, by someone in the audience, uh, he said, oh, well, you, you've had a change in leadership anyway. But it was still not... Sinn Féin. So I know that Fine Gael and Sinn Féin are Irish. Um, it's uh, true. Know, the are, government got more right wing, not more left wing. <laughs> exactly. And they are <laughs> historically and still very suspicious of each other, these two parties. So the and idea that Fine Gael is being influenced by Sinn Féin in any way. And by the way, this, the Brexit um, position that Ireland has, has cross party support. It's not, it's not just a Sinn Féin thing. So I just thought, you know, this is David Davis. He needs to know. He's, he's the Brexit negotiator for for the UK. He should well, know much more. Does he deserve more. that title? I wonder oh, that. Yeah. Because if you don't come to negotiations, are you really a negotiator? And that's the thing that the Irish yeah. responded saying, you know, it would be very helpful. I think the implication was that he should know a little bit more about Irish politics if he wants to negotiate with the Irish, but also he should come to Ireland. Yeah. Which he or really to Brussels, is. please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it just... I mean, I, I, it's unkind to say things like, he, but he, he really did sound like an idiot. He just sounded like someone who didn't know what they were talking about in a negotiation that is super critical and important. And one of the biggest roadblocks is 
Ireland's position on on the border. So yeah, it just I think he just gave um, a beautiful point for uh, Mr. Barnier and his team once they are talking about the Irish borders. Like, hey, excuse me, can you talk a little bit about uh, Ireland? It's and they true, will ask him the basic question. So mm, parfait. Eh? He will never cease to amaze us. I think I'm so over it at all those levels, though, where I just get worried when people who are trusted with very complicated mm-hmm. issues can make basic errors. I just I don't care which side, left, right, whatever. Like That's not my point in especially, this reaction. It's just, you've got to do better, uh, guys. Given that, uh, as well, he's not that young. I mean, he should have uh, at least read history, read uh, the newspaper every day. He didn't even have to read it. He's uh, lived yeah. it. This is a <laughs> member of the armed forces who lived through the troubles. Like, he should have well, a clear opinion. And in the same week that a Labour uh, MP basically said that the Good Friday Agreement was outdated, and it just it speaks to this thing that the people in London don't know what's happening in the rest of Britain as well and, and, and in Ireland, which affects their their foreign policy. And yeah, it's, it's sad. And that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We'd love for you to officially become part of the EU Confidential community by signing up at politico.eu forward slash registration. You'll get a weekly newsletter that includes the podcast and invitations to any podcast related events. We'd also be really grateful if you could like, rate or review the podcast on whatever platform you use it spread the word about us on social media we want to grow this community and we need your help to do it and we're always keen to hear from you you can reach us on podcast at politico.eu send us your dear politico dilemmas any other story tips or requests for people you'd like me to interview and of course eu confidential is a team effort it couldn't happen without michelle stoddart andrew gray wei dong lin and antonio fernandez 